when times are hard, do I really believe that God is all-powerful, all-loving, all-wise? Do I really believe that he is holy, holy, holy? Do I really believe that he cares? In the summer, as a family, we went to a Bible camp, and the speaker spent the week going through parts of Psalm 86, asking the question, who is your God? And I listened to him on two levels. As a believer, I very much appreciated his challenge to us that at times we need to recalibrate our view of God. We need to guard against having a day-to-day understanding of God that is not right. Sometimes our God is small, weak, deficient, and disappointing. And when that happens, we need to reorient our thinking to what the scripture teaches. And then on a pastoral level, I know that this is an important question for all believers and for all people to reflect on. It is heartbreaking to hear stories of individuals' faith being shaken and not standing up to pressure and stress. As a result, last month, we did a three sermons at Jerseyville on this question from Psalm 86, who is your God? And so tonight, you are getting the truncated overview. And as we ask the question, who is your God? The psalmist, King David, is going to be our guide. And we see in Psalm 86 who his God is. He tells us plainly who he believes God to be, even when he is going through great difficulty. David is in danger. Enemies are trying to kill him. People are literally chasing after him, trying to destroy him. Verse 14, arrogant foes are attacking him, and ruthless people are trying to kill him. And what does he do in such a situation? He runs to God. He pours out his heart to God. God is the anchor for his soul. In verse 2, he says, you are my God. He says, you are my God. And that prompts the question, who is David's God? Who is this one that he can have such hope and confidence in during such difficult times? What has he in his lifetime learned about God that helps and comforts him in these moments? Why in trouble does he run to and not away from God? Surrounding the words, you are my God, in verse 2, are numerous petitions that David makes as he comes to God in prayer. And as David implores of the Lord, asking him to and believing that he can respond, we see what David believes to be true about God. The requests that he makes in these verses reveal to us his understanding of God. Who is God? And our first point is, God is a God who hears. David begins the psalm with the words, Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. He recognizes himself as one who is poor and needy. He knows that he is in a situation that he cannot handle himself. He's not strong enough or wise enough to rescue himself. With this humble view of himself, he turns to God with prayer, believing that God is a God who hears. When he speaks, God listens. God hears everything that we say and everything we think, every prayer, verbal and nonverbal, that we bring to him receives his full attention. 
When David cries out, God notices. When hearts are poured out to God in brokenness and agony, he is attentive. David writes, You have kept count of my tossings. Put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? What a comfort. What a precious truth. The God of the universe hears our cries. God said to Moses in Exodus 3, 9 through 10, And now the cry of the Israelites has reached me, and I have seen the way the Egyptians are oppressing them. So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. The cries of his people have reached him. Do you believe that about your cries? Are you aware that when you weep before the Lord, he hears you? And not only did the cries of the people reach God's ear, but he acted. He answered their prayers. He sent Moses to lead them out of bondage. And David expected that God would answer his prayer as well. God is invisible, but he is very real. And he pays attention to you and to your cries. He hears you when you are hurting. He listens to your prayers and your agony. When you are poor and needy, he is attentive to you. And what comfort there is in knowing that in our difficulties, we have the tender ear of God Almighty. And David believes that God not only hears, but that he answers prayers as well. And do you believe that? Do you believe that God answers your prayers? Can you look back on your life and see God at work? And how assuring it is to be reminded that God is a prayer-answering God. And of course, at times, God does not answer according to our hopes or expectations. When it comes to dwelling on the truth that God answers prayers, we need to also remember that God's perspective is far greater and better than our perspective. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. And the fact that God does not always answer prayer the way we want or expect him to does not negate the fact that God is a prayer-answering God. So who is your God? Is he a God who hears and answers prayers? And David reminds us that God is a God who hears. And second, God is a God of mercy. David says, you are my God. When David is pressed hard on every side, he reminds himself that God is a God of mercy. Verses 2 and 3 of the psalm, preserve my life for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. And in these verses, there are three related petitions. Preserve my life, save your servant, be gracious to me. David looks to God for help. He looks to the Lord for grace and mercy. And this will result in his life being preserved and saved. And what comfort and peace there is for the believer, for the one who looks to the rock of ages for salvation and protection. The world around us may be chaotic and troubled, just like it was for David. David. 
but he knows that in the Lord there is safety and security. Preserve my life. As David writes this psalm, his life is in jeopardy. Violent enemies are coming for him. They want to do harm to him. They want to kill him. These enemies do not care about God. They are not bothered with the fact that David is the Lord's anointed to further their own plans and ambitions. They need David out of the way, and they will go to great lengths to accomplish this. And in the midst of these terrifying and terrible circumstances, David turns to God. And sadly, not everyone does this. Some think that hardships and the presence of wickedness mean that there is no God. Others, because of their difficulties, find God to be disappointing or weak or unhelpful. And that's not how David views God. He believes that God is able to guard him even against the strongest and most powerful of human enemies. Do you look to God for your refuge? As the one who will keep you safe from or in whatever circumstances you face, or from whatever fiery darts the devil may hurl at you. The Apostle Paul writes, The Lord will rescue me from every evil attack and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. 2 Timothy 4.18 We see the mercy of God in his ability to preserve us. And then David says, Save your servant. And David has learned throughout his life of God's ability to save. When he stood up to fight Goliath, he said that the Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. David did not trust in his strength or agility or cunning, but in the Lord. If he was going to defeat Goliath, then it would only be by the power of the Lord. And then when the day came, After being mocked by the giant, David said to Goliath, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands. David's primary weapons were not his sling and the stones, but the Lord. He looked to God and God alone for deliverance and salvation. And now at this time in his life, when he wrote Psalm 86, he is again in danger. When evil people are seeking his life, he knows he has learned that he can trust in the salvation of the Lord. And so he prays, save me. He turns to God and God alone for salvation. And we we are to turn to God for eternal salvation. That is our great hope, our hope of heaven. Salvation is not of works. It is not of our own efforts. It is of the Lord, a gift of God. But in addition, we should not restrict the word salvation and our need of God as Savior to only thinking of eternal salvation. We are to look to God for his saving help whenever we are in trouble. Frequently, when the psalmists use the word save, They are thinking of salvation from human enemies and dangerous circumstances. When Peter was sinking in the water, he cried, Lord, save me. What was on his mind in that moment was not his eternal destiny, but the very real danger at present. He was going to drown unless Jesus intervened. And so we pray for God to intervene in our lives, to save us, 
to deliver us from evil. Lord, save me from temptation. Save me from being enticed by the world and from being allured to fall into sin again. Lord, save me. Save my loved ones from dangerous circumstances. Lord, save me from this moral dilemma at work, giving me wisdom, patience, and grace to be faithful to you in a godless environment. Lord, save me from taking my eyes off of you and trusting in myself or other people. Lord, save me from the influence of this world and the media which would steal my heart away from you and your truth. God is a God who saves. And do you believe that he can, and he does, intervene in our lives to help and to save? And then be gracious to me. And many translations record the petition in verse 3 as a plea for mercy. Have mercy on me, Lord. And David knew what it was to be the recipient of God's grace and his mercy. We know well the story of David's sin. David coveted, and then he committed adultery with another man's wife. Then when his plan to cover up the sin failed, he had a faithful and devoted soldier killed. David sinned grievously against the Lord, against Bathsheba, Uriah, the army, and the people of the nation in general. And when Nathan, the courageous prophet, confronted him with his sin, David repented and looked to the Lord. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Psalm 51, 1 and 2. In response to his repentance, Nathan said to the king, The Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. There would be consequences great consequences for the nation and for David's family and personal consequences. But in terms of David himself, he was not going to die. This is God's mercy. David deserved to die. He had committed adultery, which is punishable by death. He had committed murder, which is punishable by death. He had failed to be a godly king and a light to the nations. David had committed capital offenses against the holy law of God, But God had taken away his sin, and he was not going to die. Well, how can God let a guilty man off the hook? And David is, in this instance, an object lesson for humanity. God is just. David's guilt must be paid for. But David did not pay it himself. It was paid for by David's son. And in a sense, it was paid for by his immediate biological son who died because of David's sin. But ultimately, it was paid for by David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And the biblical teaching is that we have all sinned against God. We have all broken his righteous and perfect law. We have all committed capital offenses. We are all deserving of eternal death. But God mercifully sent a Savior his beloved son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross as a substitute for sinners. The punishment that we deserve was put upon him. Because of Jesus' sacrifice, there is no condemnation for those who are in him. That means that 
the death sentence that we rightly deserve has been dealt with. So God says to those who believe in Jesus, I have taken away your sin. You shall not die. And so with delight, David writes, for as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we are formed. He remembers that we are dust. This is David's experience with God. This is David's God. A God who preserves, who saves, who is full of grace and mercy. What comfort having such a view, a rightly oriented view of God, brings him during dark and terrible times. He does not need to fear his enemies or his circumstances because God cares for him. God looks on him. God looks on us with eyes of mercy and compassion. One thing that the devil tries to do is corrupt our view of God, to get us to think of God as being stern and harsh and distant and angry. And that's not what the scripture teaches. That's not what David experienced. God is a God of mercy. He loves his people. He delights in us. Who is your God? Do you have the confidence that David does in the mercy of God? And then for our third point, David teaches us that God is a God who nurtures our hearts. God is a God who nurtures our hearts. David knows that whatever is going on in the world and in his life, God is doing a work within him. God works in the hearts of men and women and young people. He takes out the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. And then he nurtures and comforts and develops the heart of flesh for our peace and blessing. And there's much in this world that would trouble our hearts. But God wants us to be at peace. Well, what sort of heart work does God do? He brings joy to our hearts. Verse 4. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. If you were to write out a list of attributes of God, would your mind be inclined to write joy giver down? That's on David's list. He looks to God to give him joy, to gladden his soul. If he is focused on his problems, and the difficulties of this world, if he was consumed with those who wanted to take his life, then he would be weary and distressed. But he looks to God to bring him joy, to bring joy to his soul. And what can God do to gladden his soul? And David himself gives us the answer in Psalm 16. He says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. In that verse, David says that joy is found in the presence of God. That which gladdens his soul, that which gives him delight, is knowing God. Not just knowing about God, but knowing God. Being in relationship with the true and living God. Even in the midst of danger, even when his life is threatened, David seeks joy, knowing that joy is found 
in the presence of God. When David says, bring joy to your servant, or gladden the soul of your servant, he is asking that he would experience a deep sense of God's presence. In the midst of his trouble, what he wants, first and foremost, is more of God. He wants the joy and peace that comes from an awareness of God's nearness. God is everywhere. And what David wants is a real sense, a deep understanding that God is right there with him. Though the enemies are coming against him, he wants to feel God's embrace, the loving arms of the Lord wrapped around him. What a faithful instructor David is. And may we look for our souls to be gladdened by the Lord, not only when we are going through deep trials, but at all times. David's God is a God who draws near and helps us in times of trouble. And then under this heading of God being one who nurtures our hearts, he is a God who teaches. And let's slide down to verse 11, where we see another petition that David makes. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Teach me your way. David knows that God is a God who reveals truth, divine truth to him. David humbly understands that he does not have all wisdom, but God does. And he knows that God's lessons are sometimes learned when we go through trials and when our faith is tested. And David wants to learn the lessons that God has for him so that he might walk faithfully in God's truth. Is this your prayer? Teach me your way, O Lord. And one writer notes that the way it should be is that we modify our behavior based on God's truth. We do not modify our view of God to suit our own behavior. We ask God to teach us. We seek God's ways and then we modify our behavior. We change our ways in light of what God has revealed to us. We conform our ways to his ways. And sadly, so often people modify their view of God to accommodate their ways and their behavior. They want to act in certain ways or they want to believe that certain behaviors are okay. And so they change their view of God to being a God who is not very holy and who does not take sin seriously. And you cannot read very far in the scriptures to know that that is a dangerous game. God revealed his way to us, and we are to follow. And those who follow God's ways are considered to be wise. The wise man, the man who built his house on the rock, was the one who heard the words of Jesus and put them into practice. The foolish man, on the other hand, was the one who heard the words of Jesus, who sat under the same sermon, but he didn't like what Jesus said. Jesus' ways, Jesus' words were not palatable to him. He thought that he knew better, and so he did not put into practice the words of the Son of God. We are to ask Jesus to teach us, and then to follow his ways. And when we ask God to teach us his way, we need to remember that Jesus is the way. To know God's way begins with believing in Jesus Christ 
for the forgiveness of sins and to trust in him for eternal life. And then as a follower of Jesus, we are to put his words into practice by obeying his commands and teaching others to do the same. We are to imitate Jesus and pattern our lives after him. We are to have priorities like Jesus, seeking first the kingdom of God, loving righteousness, and having a heart for people. We are to display the same attributes that characterize Jesus, like humility, meekness, patience, and grace. We are to show sacrificial love to others. This is the way of God. We are, as Jesus was, to be consumed with seeing God glorified. God's answer to our prayer, teach me your way, Lord, would be for us to have a deeper understanding of Jesus and what it means to follow him. And that is the heart of David in this psalm. In times of trouble, he wants a deeper relationship with God. And he knows that God honors such a desire. And let us look at one last petition under the heading that God nurtures our hearts. And that is, God gives our hearts focus. In the second part of verse 11, David writes, Unite my heart to fear your name. The NIV says, Give me an undivided heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those whose hearts are fully committed to the Lord. David's God is a God who gives his heart focus, who helps him to take his eyes off of the worthless things of this world and to gaze upon God. And the request that David makes of God is that he will help him. He will enable him to keep his heart pure. He wants to be solely devoted to the Lord. David knows that there are all sorts of enticements for our hearts. This world is full of idols. Our desires, our senses are allured and drawn away from God. We are promised immediate satisfaction and gratification. Following our passions is easy. Following the Lord is hard. The dearest idol I have known, whate'er that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. And David knows that if left to himself, his heart will go after idols. So he requests that God would give him an undivided heart. Remember the scene on Mount Carmel. Elijah had called the people to assemble there. There was a great crowd. There were the 450 prophets of Baal. Elijah was setting up a showdown between God and Baal. And with the scene set, Elijah spoke to the crowd and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Elijah accuses the people of having a divided heart. They waver between two opinions. They do not fully follow God and they do not fully follow Baal. There is a tug of war going on in their hearts and for their affections. Elijah calls on them to make a choice, to have a clear allegiance. And what do the people do when they are reprimanded by Elijah? The last line of 1 Kings 18.21 says, But the people said nothing. What a tragedy. They are called to make a decision, but they do not say or do anything. And why not? What prevents them from acting? Well, they're not sure what to do because they want to be on the right side. 
They, don't, they do not want to show their cards too early. They do not want to ally with God and risk the displeasure of Jezebel and Ahab. And they do not want to throw their lot in with Baal because they've already witnessed God's power by withholding rain. They do not want to make a mistake and cast their lot in with the losing side. And so they refuse to take a stand until they know what the successful side will be. They are not a people of conviction, but a people of comfort and convenience and cowardice. And David wants none of that perspective or attitude. He believes that God is great and awesome. He believes that God is true and powerful. He always wants to be on God's side. He wants to be on God's side, even if it means violent enemies. He wants to be on God's side, even if it means people trying to kill him. He wants to be on God's side, even if that means life in the present will be hard. All of the difficulties of this world cannot compare with the joy and delight of knowing God and being on his side forever and ever. So David prays for an undivided heart, and he believes that God will protect his heart and enable him to be faithful. He trusts that God will give him the strength to resist the enticements that would steal his heart from the Lord. Now, do you have such a passion? Is your desire to be fully devoted to God? What David reveals to us is that God cares about our hearts. He teaches us. He gives our hearts joy. And he enables our hearts to be pure. God does a work in our hearts which enables us to find joy, hope, and confidence in him even when we go through deep waters and severe trials. There's so much more that could be said about the revelation of God in this psalm and how the truth about God brings comfort and peace and hope to David in his distress. Well, who is your God? And we all need to grapple with this question. And this is a very important and relevant question. It will affect how we live our lives, how we deal with suffering, how we use our time, how we parent, how we relate to others, how we view ourselves in this world, and it will affect and prioritize what we value and where we look for hope. The scripture teaches us that there are objective, once and for all truths about God. And when life is hard, when we are disappointed and hurt and frustrated, when our life hangs in the balance, what do we believe about God? And David shows us that rightly knowing God brings great comfort and peace and hope and even joy in the darkest of times. I suggested to our congregation that a profitable exercise would be to follow David's pattern and write a poem or prayer or song which reflects who your God is. Remember the words in verse 2, you are my God. And if you were to write a work with the central theme of you are my God, what would you write? What qualities of God would you take delight in? And how closely would your composition line up with what the scripture teaches us to be true about God? Are there areas in which you need to recalibrate your view of God, making sure that it aligns with the biblical teaching? 
Well, may we all have our thoughts about God rightly oriented so that our hearts may be at peace and so that we might glorify him and grow in faith and grace. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, it's so awesome to think about who you are. And our Father, when we see David and his circumstance and how difficult things were for him, how much danger there was in his life, and yet our Father, he had such confidence and hope in you. He delighted in you. And our Father, help us to have such a view of who you are. Help us to realize that you are the God who hears. You are a God of mercy. You are a God who nurtures our hearts. And our Father, we can have confidence that you are the God who will bring us safely into eternity because of what the Lord Jesus Christ has accomplished on the cross. Thank you for your precious word and bless these truths to our hearts in Jesus' name. Amen.